imagine if you will, a winter bird in the depths of Minnesota winter, sitting on its perch, it's minus 20 degrees, the wind is blowing, the snow is flying, it's a ground blizzard out there, and they're sitting there perfectly comfy and cozy in their wonderful coat of feathers uh, surviving the winter. That sounds amazing, but even more amazing, it could be something like a crossbill that's sitting on eggs or feeding its young during this major winter blizzard in the middle of February. Welcome to the ETC by the University of Minnesota Extension, and welcome to our final episode for this third season of the podcast. I'm Nate Meyer, and I'm excited to talk with my colleague John Logering, an extension specialist and wildlife ecologist, about how birds can stick around through the long, cold Minnesota winter. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, good to be here. It's great to have you. So many of our listeners know you from Extension, especially our Minnesota Master Naturalist and Master Gardener volunteer programs, but you also research bird and other wildlife ecology. We have an entire episode from last season about your research that I'll link to in the episode notes. But to start us off today, can you remind us briefly about your background? Sure. I'm, I have a, an interesting, a unique joint appointment. I'm a professor uh, here at the University of Minnesota Crookston, where I teach courses in vertebrate ecology, like, you know, mammalogy, ornithology, wildlife ecology, all the ologies related to critters with backbones. And then I'm also an extension wildlife specialist, where I have statewide responsibility and contribute to a number of programs like the, the Master Gardener Program, the Master Woodland Owner Program, the Master Naturalist Team is, is my home team, where I spend a bit of time, you know, but also do dabblings in uh, pesticide safety education, um, as well as doing some uh, research on birds and run a bird banding station. So I've, I've got, a, got a very broad interest. Um, indeed, my training is as a very broad uh, wildlife ecologist, but my real passion is birds. So the weather is getting colder this time of year, and we've seen waves of migratory birds heading south for the winter. But some birds stick around in Minnesota throughout the cold months. What are some different kinds of birds we're likely to see overwintering in Minnesota? You know, there's a, there's a lot of birds you're likely to see overwinter. You know, if I look to the Minnesota Ornithologists Union, they're really the kind of the keeper of the tally sheet or the, the, of the numbers. And they'll tell you that there are about 440 bird species that occur in Minnesota. Over 100 of those don't occur very regularly. So we're down to uh, maybe 310 species over the course of the annual cycle of that somewhere between 40% and half are here all winter. So 60% hit the trail, they head south. And so the things you're, you're likely to see are mostly critters that can survive here in the winter. You know, so water birds and insect eaters are the first to leave. There aren't any insects flying around in the middle of February, and we all we are all very thankful of that. And, and most of our water freezes, so they head south. Although humans, we've we've messed up that water freezing thing. You know, there are a lot of uh, waterways that we now keep open through various human activities, and that does provide an opportunity for those water birds. So of those, most of the birds are traveling south. You know, some stop in Missouri. Um, and some fly all the way to the pampas of Argentina, like the like the bobolink, the pr- pr- wonderful prairie bird. Um, those that remain, it's sort of dominated by a couple of groups. Uh, those that eat seeds, because seeds are well-preserved and, and are available in the environment. 
um, those that are predators upon those that eat seeds, um, as well as uh, critters that are like scavengers and food generalists. Um, you know, and there are also a few that are herb herbivorous, like uh, like grouse. You know, they survive on on aspen buds. You know, the major groups that you're going to see are things like blackbirds and grackles and crows and and ravens. They're they're all sort of generalistic species. Um, the sparrows and the finches eat mostly seeds. Uh, you know, woodpeckers um, are kind of a unique one. They'll eat all sorts of things, but uh, mostly uh, they're predators. They're eating animal prey. Um, and then a few generalists like, you know, starlings and house sparrows that'll eat just about anything and are often associated with humans um, that, that can, can limp along with us. Oh, and then, of course, the predators, things like owls and hawks that uh, are eating all the other things. You know, so I should also mention that, you know, we think of winter is a hard time in Minnesota. Everybody, you know, 60, 40, 50 to 60% of the birds leave, head south. But we are also the destination. We are the balmy destination for several of the northern species that find Minnesota winters very comfortable. And so we get these movements of snow buntings or common red poles coming from northern climates coming to Minnesota for our balmy winters, you know, our nice, warm, uh, easy winters. Sometimes we get large eruptions, uh, which is uh, when you seemingly overnight, you get a whole bunch of uh, snowy owls or uh, northern hawk owls or great gray owls that sort of just appear. Usually in the northern half of Minnesota, uh, we get large bounces, big pulse in the population. Uh, suddenly they're all they're all over the place. Um, and it's usually a result of, again, less than favorable conditions farther north. So they, they keep pushing south for trying to find a place to, you know, to make a living, to survive and, uh, and enough prey to eat. In our interview last season, John, you mentioned capturing and banding small black-capped chickadees who overwinter in Minnesota. You described them as having a wolverine-like temperament that you would need to live in northern Minnesota during the middle of winter and do just fine. What are some of the adaptations, temperament or otherwise, that enable birds like chickadees to survive the winter? Oh, indeed. Anyone who's ever handled a, a black-capped chickadee knows that they are a cute, fluffy little 14-gram bird with the spirit of a wolverine inside. Um, they are tenacious. They are, you know, again, they're only, you know, they weigh about the, you know, two car keys. That's that's all. They're, they're not very uh, heavy, but they certainly have attitudinal uh, wolverine all embedded into them. That's a that's an adaptation, certainly that tenacity to survive in the winter. But they they've also got great resourcefulness, um, and a, and a great example for for chickadees. As long as we're talking about chickadees, would be their relationship with goldenrod galls and goldenrod gall flies. It's a, a great story of you know in the summer the goldenrod gall fly it, it lays a, an egg inside the stem of a goldenrod plant. That plant responds by creating a, a big bubble or a bump, and it. Uh, turns into a sphere and it's full of plant material, very fluffy plant material. It really looks like a styrofoam insulation. And so that parasite, it lays the egg there, the gall expands, and then come wintertime, that little, little uh, larvae has a wonderful place to spend the winter in this very insulated environment. And in the spring, if uh, nothing happens, it will, of course, uh, uh, burrow its way out and then become the adult fly. But chickadees have figured out that those galls are full of a tasty little nugget of food. And so they'll overwinter, you know, it's a great midwinter snack to be able to find some animal protein like that. They'll actually perch on that stem and hammer their way or, or dig a hole through the, the gall and uh, 
pluck that little uh, little insect larvae out. So it's a very resourceful critter. They're always looking for a meal. They're always uh, engaging in that. You know, birds are really well suited for surviving the winter. They're they're full of feathers. You know, we we all know that the best coat you can buy for warmth is a down coat made out of you know that downy feather that come from birds. We get them from geese, but certainly all those birds have them, and they certainly change. You know, they'll molt into extra down come come winter. We've done studies on critters like American goldfinches, where uh, we've taken them, placed them in a in an environment and find that their body temperature does not change over, over eight hours, even though we've stuck them in a freezer at 94 below, below Fahrenheit. You know, and that's just an example of how they can adapt and acclimatize to that cold weather and really kick up their metabolism. Plenty of other species have some pretty fantastic adaptations. Um, great gray owls are, are well known to be able to listen uh, very carefully to voles burrowing and, and moving underneath the snow. They can track them, locate them, and easily do so under two feet of snow. Um, that's amazing, but then they will also pounce through that and drive through that two feet of snow and grab a hold of that vole and capture them. So that's just, to me, that's, that's pretty amazing to have that fine of a hearing to be able to find them underneath the snow. Um, you know, other sorts of fun things that I can think of of winter adaptation, uh, rough grouse often will find soft snowbanks and, and fly into them and, and drop into them and then wiggle and shimmer, shimmy uh, their way down to get fully covered with snow and then roost there overnight, buried by snow and covered with that great insulated layer. You know, that's, that's how sometimes humans will survive when confronted with the outside environment as you make yourself an igloo or a snow cave or a Quincy or something to keep yourself warm. You know, grouse do the same sort of thing. You know, other species will roost communally like nuthatches and, and, and still others will even form little pyramids of, you know, you might have a dozen birds in two or three different layers perched on each other to try to conserve heat to make it through those really cold, cold winters or cold winter nights. Um, you know, most birds are not, not moving around during, during the night. They don't have a very good ability to see at night. So they're, they're really pretty sedentary that, at that time and they just survive by getting together with each other. You know, I think the key for listeners is to think about that vegetation out there and what sort of protection you can help those birds find a place to get out of the wind and survive those, you know, those minus 40 nights. That's a great transition, John. I wanted to ask if there are any conservation challenges for overwintering birds that we should be concerned about and how can our listeners help? Where can they learn more? Well, yeah, there certainly are uh, some challenges that are faced by overwintering birds, you know, and it really depends on where you're at. You know, if you're out in the grasslands of Minnesota, the, you know, sort of the western uh, and southern tier of the state, you know, those areas, the birds that have evolved in that area are used to burrowing underneath the grass or getting down at the soil level, you know, uh, in, with the protection of all that grass. So having large tracts of intact grasslands that allow the birds to seek refuge or, or having natural wetlands that have cattails, you know, some place that you can get out of the wind and, and provide a little microclimate. To, to survive. It, it also gets pretty challenging, um, you know, in forested and maybe more urban landscapes. Often we provide that structure with uh, dense shrubs or with a conifer. Um, you know, obviously the deciduous trees lose all their leaves, so they don't provide a lot of break of the wind, but certainly a dense shrub will, will, will do some of that. And certainly conifer shrubs and even conifer trees are, are often where you'll find uh, birds roosting overnight during that, that really critical period. The folks could also help out with uh, supplemental food. You know, the bird feeding is a real common pastime in Minnesota. Um, Minnesotans uh, really engage in a lot of that and, and feeding, you know, either seeds or suet will attract a wide variety of birds. Uh, you know, I, I will say that birds do 
uh, can survive the winter without that free handout. That that's that uh, isn't something that really affects their overall survival one way or the other. But once you start feeding, it's important to continue that through the springtime until you see insects flying around. Um, they they do get accustomed to that handout, and so it is. Uh, to their benefit to keep feeding them once you start. And if you really want to provide some natural food, you know, think about uh, maybe planting some winter hardy fruit bearing trees that provide something for that bird to eat in the late winter. Things like, you know, red splendor crab apples are a common one for common wildlife tree or, or dogwoods or nanking cherry or plums, anything that's going to offer them a, a lovely something or other to eat late in the late in the season. And I guess I'll also take a brief aside and say that in addition to helping overwintering birds here, you can also help overwintering birds uh, if they are the those that migrate south, because though they migrate to the tropics, they migrate to areas that are um, often critical for their overall annual survival. You know, we we, we seldom think in Minnesota of uh, you know these birds come to our area to breed, and we think that's the most important. But the reality is, is their winter habitat may be just as important to their overall annual survival. So focusing on products that uh, are bird friendly from the tropics, things like shade grown coffee and, and shade grown or, or, or sustainable uh, chocolate to common products that Americans consume a ton of and are often uh, and can be done in a way that is far more bird friendly than the uh, just the standard uh, highly intensive agriculture model. So keep those wintering warblers happy by buying that shade grown coffee. Uh, lots of resources out there. The, certainly the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources has several sites on uh, on winter bird feeding and that sort of thing. You know, on a national level, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology is sort of the nation's leader in providing science-based evidence and science-based information about birds and, and uh, various species. And they have a backyard bird count in February that uh, citizens love to participate in. And, and really, if you're interested in participating, think about uh, finding a Christmas bird count nearby. They happen uh, usually the two weeks preceding Christmas, sometimes the week after Christmas. Um, this is a, an event that's been running for 120 years and would be a fabulous way for citizens to get involved. Um, if you want to get involved more in the local scene, Carol Henderson from, uh, he's retired from the Minnesota DNR, but he produced this Landscaping for Wildlife uh, resource, a, a book that is used across the country. And it has wonderful uh, suggestions on how to maybe design landscapes that make them more, more wildlife friendly, more bird friendly. You can kind of pick and choose on that one. This is my last question. You're familiar with it. I ask it of everyone. What is a brief message or a hashtag that you wish millions of people were sharing right now on billboard signs and social media news feeds? Yeah, I love this question. I'm a gray-haired old guy that doesn't hashtag, so I don't have a clue what uh, what the what the younger uh, folks are doing. But certainly, you know, hashtag nature, hashtag get outside, hashtag shade grown coffee, all sorts of things that uh, that I find very uh, very important. Uh, certainly for the winter, you know, also during migration, you know, there are all sorts of campaigns that are uh, you know about lights out and uh, trying to keep urban centers a little darker during migration because that messes with the birds and they collide with uh, these large glass structures that we call skyscrapers. Um, and, and I guess we could end with, you could say, hashtag bird nerd. Hey, this is our last episode of the third season of the podcast. We're working on some great episodes for next year. You should see them in your podcast feeds and on our social media as spring starts across Minnesota. In the meantime, though, we hope you'll keep exploring and listening to past episodes of the ETC and other Extension podcasts you can find at extension.umn.edu 
forward slash news forward slash extension dash podcasts. I especially encourage you to check out The Story of Nitrogen, a new five-episode podcast about how one nutrient shapes life in fields and streams, soil and sea. My colleague Greg Klinger is joining me to introduce it. Greg, I'm so glad you were able to join the ETC to talk about your new audio series about the story of nitrogen. Can you tell us a little bit about the five-part series and how it pertains to our listeners who are interested in problem-solving science and stewardship of Minnesota's natural resources? Sure, and, and thanks for having me. So the first thing that might pop into your head is just why a podcast about nitrogen? And I think really the main answer is nitrogen shapes everything we see in the world around us. It's a nutrient that every living thing needs, but it's also really scarce in the world. And so a lot of living things have evolved different strategies to obtain it. And what that really means is that when the amount of nitrogen moving around in the environment changes, um, which it has pretty significantly, especially over the last 50 to 70 years, um, living things really change quite a bit as well. You know, it changes what trees or plants grow in a forest, what weeds will grow in a field, uh, so many other things, for example. Now, I'm an agronomist, which really means that I'm, I'm trained to look at what I'm seeing in a field and try and, you know, from that observation, figure out, you know, what's usually what's going wrong, you know, but why something is happening. And I think a lot of people interested in natural resources can relate to that idea. They're so often curious about what they're seeing when they're in the woods or on the water. Um, and that's the approach we really tried to take for this series. We interviewed biologists, ecologists, soil scientists, farmers, geologists, and just asked them to really go deep into the science and help us explain why nitrogen or how it relates to different things that we see every day. And then we broke that story down into about five different parts, uh, each an episode that kind of relate to a different aspect of nitrogen. I found in speaking with these experts, and I think others will as well, that it really allowed me to look at the world around me with fresh eyes. And that's really what the series is all about. Perfect. I have to say, I've listened to some of your first episodes, and I am just really impressed, not only with the story of nitrogen itself, which I agree is very interesting, but also with the production quality. You're a great storyteller. It's really engrossing. The interviews are um, well worth listening to. So for all of you out there, I encourage you to visit z.umn.edu forward slash story of N, all one word, or search your favorite podcast feed to start listening. In the meantime, here's a sample of the audio series for you. One spring a few years ago, after a couple long days of taking soil samples and spreading fertilizer, I got in my car and started heading south from my home in Rochester, Minnesota, driving down the famous Highway 61 that winds along the mighty Mississippi River. As I stopped to watch the river flow by, flocks of ducks, pelicans, and cranes wheeling overhead, I thought about the work I'd been doing, the nitrogen fertilizer I'd been spreading. Science tells us that nitrogen from fields, lawns, combustion engines, and power plants is a fickle thing, easily moving across the landscape through air and water and soil, 
creating a cascade of effects that are hard to predict and even harder to control. The river in front of me was part of a vast system carrying hundreds of thousands of tons of nitrogen from the middle of the United States to the Gulf of Mexico every year, where experts tell us it supercharges the system, ultimately leading to large areas where the water gets depleted in oxygen, driving fish and other creatures away. In my role as an agronomist, I see every day how nitrogen fertilizer boosts the productivity of farm fields, increasing yields of food, fiber, and forage. But that same nitrogen, if it were in a nearby forest, might cause trees to grow faster or to grow weaker and die. In a freshwater lake, it might have little effect at all. But in saltwater systems such as the Gulf of Mexico, it might cause a large boost in biological productivity and algae growth that we generally perceive to be negative. Watching the river quietly flow by, I found myself filled with questions. First and foremost, why would the same atom of nitrogen behave so differently, cause such a wide range of effects in various environments? And could I use that information to become a better agronomist? Lastly, it made me wonder about a question that drives the curiosity of many of us. As we see the types of plants change while walking through the forest, as we hunt for bass among the lily pads, watch the plants in our yards and gardens grow and die, or try to diagnose some strange condition in our crop fields. Why am I seeing what I'm seeing? My name is Greg Klinger, and I'm an agronomist and educator at the University of Minnesota Extension. Together with my friend and colleague, Shane Bujea, I've spent the last few months interviewing experts in agronomy, biology, nutrient management, and ecology, trying to understand the story of nitrogen in the hopes of explaining the phenomena we see out in the field, woods, and water. Join us as we explore the different facets of this complex issue. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of the ETC. Huge thanks to John for joining us to talk about overwintering birds. Thanks as well to Greg for giving us something great to listen to over the coming winter months. Look for the ETC and subscribe on any of your favorite podcast services. Give us a thumbs up or drop a comment to let us know you value the podcast. Pass it along to others. We look forward to sharing more episodes in our fourth season next spring.